Our text is the gospel lesson just read from John chapter 6. It is interesting, maybe even a little surprising, that this text, the feeding of the 5,000, is the only miracle of Jesus which is reported in all four Gospels. The only one. Now, in John's Gospel, it functions much like the supplying of wine at the wedding of Cana does. Namely, it's a messianic sign of the age of abundant provision brought about now in the appearance of Jesus. We saw sort of shadows of that sign in the Old Testament lesson from 2 Kings, where the prophets supplied food by God's miraculous power. And so, in the flow of John's Gospel, this text is like a prelude. Uh, It's like an introduction to this longer, more famous, if you will, bread of life discourse, which, Lord willing, we'll begin to look at next week. But here, I want to make three points. They're on the back inside page of your bulletin. The crowd, the miracle, and the aftermath. So first, the crowd. In in Mark's gospel, we learn that the 12 disciples had just returned from a sort of ministry trip, a very successful mission in Galilee. That's where this all takes place, in Galilee, way up in the north. In this mission that the disciples were on, they had cast out many demons, they had healed many sick. And what happened in doing this, they had aroused the attention of King Herod. And Herod hears about this this mission, and he thinks that John the Baptist, whom he had beheaded, had risen from the dead. And it's in response to this, this newly awakened hostility from Herod, to whom Jesus, Mark tells us, had just become known, that Jesus then takes his disciples to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, out of Herod's jurisdiction. That is the movement referred to in verse 1 of our text. Mark tells us it's a desolate place. It's a wilderness It's supposed to be a place of rest and relaxation after the season of ministry that they just engaged in. And Jesus and the disciples, they cross by boat. Right, The famous night storm where Jesus comes to his disciples and walks on water and they eventually get to land, that takes place here. And Luke tells us that they came to the town of Bethsaida, which is Philip's hometown. And this is just on the east side of where the Jordan River enters the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. So the Jordan River is up here. It comes into the Sea of Galilee, and then it flows out on the south. They're way up here on the east side. But it turns out, because they had stirred up so much excitement in Galilee, that a great crowd of people ran around the northern end of the lake and actually got there before Jesus and his disciples. And John records this in verse 2. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs that he had performed on the sick. These are, as we'll see increasingly in John's gospel, they are not sound 
well-grounded folks in their faith. John tells us very early in his gospel that people believed in Jesus when they saw the signs he did. I mean, he's a bright light. And so he attracts all different kinds. But Jesus, we're told, didn't entrust himself to them. John tells us this back in chapter 2. Because he knew what was in man. And these people seem to be cut from the same cloth. So they're very excited by the signs. But they're not clear at all on the import of the signs. The import or the meaning of the signs. They have a very deficient notion of what's happening in Jesus' ministry. And yet some attraction to him. History is full of people like this. So that's how they get to where they are. Now back to John's account. Jesus and his disciples go up on a mountainside. This is the, uh, it's a very hilly region. It's what's known today as the Golan Heights. That's where the story takes place. And the Jewish Passover festival was near, John tells us. This is a little important piece of information because Jesus is about to go on a long bread of life discourse. Jesus has already spent one Passover in Jerusalem. He spends this Passover in Galilee, far from Jerusalem. He'll spend the next one in Jerusalem where he'll be executed, arrested and executed. But the Passover evokes the idea that Jesus is the Lamb of God and the bread given for the life of the world. And so John is setting the stage for this longer discussion which is about to happen about bread and manna and Jesus' flesh and blood. But here, we're not there yet to that longer discussion, but here, Jesus looks up and he he sees this excited crowd pressing in on them in verse 5. And he says to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, I've always thought there's a kind of dark humor at play here. It's maybe easier to see in the other Gospels. In the other Gospels, The disciples tell Jesus, it's time to send the crowds away into the surrounding towns so they can get lodging and provisions since we're in a desolate place. And you know what Jesus says to his disciples in the other Gospels? He says this, you give them something to eat. I mean, there are 20,000 people here, including women and children. You give them something to eat. This strikes me as a question that Jesus knows they're going to respond improperly to. Like he knows they're not going to get this right. And here in John's gospel, it's Philip that he puts the question to. He puts Philip on the spot. Where shall we, Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, Philip is from Bethsaida. He's the logical guy to ask. He knows all the best local places. This is his hometown. But John expressly tells us, Jesus asked this only to test him, for he already knew what he was going to do. I mean, poor Philip. He's being used as a prop. He's not going to pass the test. Do you know what the real question here is? It's something like this. Philip, do you think I can supply food for all these people? Now, I mean, Philip might have a fighting chance with that question. 
But Jesus doesn't even give him that question. He doesn't even give him a clue. He asks, where can we buy food for these people? The question is almost intentionally to direct Philip down this path. That apparently obvious mundane question is in fact a test. Reminds me of a test or a class I had in, in college. It was a signals communication class my senior year. And it was taught by a PhD student, not yet a, a full-time professor, but very gifted. And he gives us a test once. Now, these tests had four questions each question worth 25 points. So you'd get the test, right? And you'd do a quick scan of all four questions because you want to see if there's like one question that you might need to spend a lot of time on because it looked difficult, right? And so you have to allocate your time properly during the test. So I can remember I get the test and I look down and I look at number four and I think, I don't know how to do this one, which is very unnerving. Um, because that, you, you think, well, I'm starting with a 75 on this test, or, or something like a 75. So I start with number four, and I spend an inordinate amount of time on it, and I know I don't get it right. And then I talk to the other students after the test, and they all had the same problem. So the teacher gives us the test back in a couple days, and he says, no one got number four right. And I kid you not, he says this. I put it on there because I saw it in some of my PhD work, and I didn't know how to do it. So I thought one of you guys might figure it out. It's very much like you give them something to eat. Right? Where, where, where shall we buy bread for these people. There's no way Philip's getting this right. Only unlike my teacher, Jesus does know the right answer. And he knows what he's going to do. And he knows how to solve the problem. Right, you know what the right answer is here? How Philip could have passed this test? It's something like this. Lord, we don't need to buy them any bread. You are the messianic bread from heaven. And you've already shown your healing power with the man, the cripple at the gate of Bethesda. You've already provided abundant wine at the wedding of Cana as a sign of your glory. You've already spoke to us at length of your unique relationship with the Father and the infinite resources at your disposal. You, O oh Lord, can provide bread not only for these, but for the whole world. Right? The odds of Philip saying something like that at this point are slim. Right? They're about the same as my odds of getting number four right. He doesn't say that. But you know what? Jesus expects him to say something like that. I mean, the information to say that's right there. It's public information. Jesus has done these miraculous signs. He's, everything I just said, he's already taught them. But what does Philip say? He says rather blandly, it would take more than eight months' wages to buy enough bread for each one to even have a bite. Jesus must be thinking, ah, there's my boy. <laughs> there's my... He never surprises me. He never overachieves. I was hoping for that other answer. That's Philip, though. He can do math. 
He's very good with food and shopping numbers. He walks around with a slide rule in his pocket. Right? This guy's a master of mundane arithmetic. It's messianic arithmetic, however, that he's not too good at. Human calculus, very good. The strange divine calculus of the mystery of the Messiah, not so much. But Jesus is very gentle with him. Very gentle. He says nothing. Like he doesn't even collect the test. And then there's another disciple, Andrew. And he says, here's a boy with five barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will that go among so many? Andrew, too, seems to have completely forgotten about Cana and about the paralytic. It is really astonishing how forgetful we human beings are, right? So, Andrew doesn't know any messianic arithmetic either. You know, there is a strange logic, an arithmetic, a calculus to the gospel. It has to be learned. The small amount of loaves and fishes are ludicrously inadequate. They only serve to heighten the miracle. That brings us to the second point. So that's the crowd. The second point is the actual miracle. Jesus is not panicked. And Jesus does not see this as a math problem. He doesn't even respond to Philip or Andrew. But it is a teachable moment, and they're about to be taught. So he says, have the people sit down. Now we know from the other Gospels that Jesus does this in a very patient and orderly fashion. He sits the people down in groups of 50s and 100s. So with the 5,000 men, you have about a total of 20,000 people all together. So imagine the scene. It's 200 groups spread out over this hilly terrain. 200 groups of 100 people each. So it's roughly the simultaneous you know, participation of over 200 of our fellowship meals. Sprawled out. Jesus takes the loaves and gives thanks and distributes them. Now, Christian readers hear echoes of the supper here, the Eucharist, but the original participations wouldn't. The original participants wouldn't because the supper hadn't been instituted yet. I mean, this is just what happens at a normal Jewish meal. You take the bread, you give thanks, you distribute it. And Jesus almost certainly uttered the standard Hebrew blessing over the bread, which we know. Right? The blessing is, blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, for thou bringest forth bread from the earth. Marvelous prayer. And again, here, just like at Cana, The miracle itself is not even described. It's not narrated. It just silently occurs. They distribute to those who are seated as much as they wanted. It's now an all-you-can-eat fellowship meal. right? As much as they wanted. And, And the multiplication is implied. It has to be inferred from the text. So finally then, so that's the miracle... The aftermath is important because it helps set up more, in a more close way this bread of life discourse, which I hope to look at over the next week or two. But here I just want to make two sub-points. One is abundance and the other is kingdom. 
So the first one is abundance. Everyone has enough to eat. There's even a superabundance, and they gather up 12 baskets with these leftover barley loaves. There's more at the end than there is at the beginning. There's been a great deal of speculation about these 12 baskets in the history of the church. Some of the church fathers saw that as a sign that Jesus provides for the whole house of Israel because there's 12 baskets. I think that's unlikely, but perhaps it's true. But the point of the miracle is really very simple. The point of the miracle is this. Jesus comes to bring life, and life abundantly for his people. He comes in a barren and a desolate land, like a root out of dry ground. That's what Israel's like now, to supply for our need. It's a very simple miracle, right? In the face of our bankruptcy and the absence of our own resources, he gives us sustenance. He gives us joy. He is the substance of our lives. And so he provides for you this great and full and complete and sufficient salvation to which nothing needs to be added. And it's sufficient for all of our needs. This is a great comfort. This miracle is about the gospel, that even in the midst of our afflictions and hardships and bitter disappointments, we can have a kind of abundance. Once we see that abundance means, and we'll see this later in John 6, it means communion with Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Now, we should, remember, we should, as Philip and Andrew did not, we should move in our thinking from earthly bread to heavenly communion with the inexhaustible life of Jesus. right? The stuff that's in the created order is a sacrament or a sign. It's trying to point you beyond itself. But Philip and Andrew have not learned this yet. right? They, 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 they're, um, their thought and their affection tends to terminate on the earthly. So, in this sense, every meal is a sign of the coming feast of the kingdom, of our communion with God and Christ face to face. And by the way, that's made very clear, I think, in John 6. So in giving the bread in this fashion, what we need to see is Jesus is going to say, I give you myself. I give you myself. And of course, in doing this, his supply is infinite. Supply is infinite. Now, this is not, right, in this text, like a sort of health and wealth promise. You can't fake this kind of abundance, nor can you even really claim it. There's a great temptation in this text that preachers succumb to, which is to say, take the little you have and give it to Jesus, and he'll multiply it and give it back to you. Right, because the boy had, as if as if that as if that boy wasn't there, Jesus would be stuck saying, "I don't know what we can do with these five thousand people." Thank goodness the boy is here, and he's got just a little bit that I can start to work with. Right now, that principle, of course, is true, but it's it's not the point of this text. Right, the point of this text is not you've got a little. Jesus can make you have a lot more than that. That is not the point of the text. The point is, you're in a desolate, barren land without resources, and Jesus is the bread of heaven. He's the bread of heaven. So, Jesus is trying to get us to see here 
a new way of thinking about abundance, about supply, about sufficiency. He already did this at the wedding of Cana, but he's, he's done it with wine, and now he does it with bread. Jesus Christ himself, God in Christ, is our inheritance. And when Paul prays for the church, he prays that you would be filled up to all the fullness of God. That's the promise that this text holds out for us. Second thing I want to look at is kingship. And here I want to recall the opening background about fleeing from Herod. Because that provokes the whole scene. In one sense, this is a very political miracle. It's provoked by local political realities on the ground, and it comes back to the theme of kingship at the end. So the people, they see the sign that Jesus performed, and they say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. It's a reference to Deuteronomy 18. Uh, The Lord promises to raise up a prophet like Moses. Now, this is reasonable, I think, on behalf of the people. They saw Jesus provide manna from heaven. That's what Moses did. Maybe this is the new greater Moses. But Moses was a deliverer, and now Jesus knows they're going to come and try and make him king. So a couple things are in play here. First, the people hate Herod and the Romans. And they see an opportunity here. They see an opportunity to reassert their own political autonomy and dominion. They see a chance to take land back and a chance for self-rule and to throw off the Roman yoke. That's primarily what they see in the signs that Jesus does. They think, now here's a king we can rise up with. So, now, moderns don't tend to misread the signs that way, right? We tend to misread them as promises for our own personal abundance. But ancient people misread the signs in this political way. Both readings are wrong. The signs are signs of the messianic kingdom which comes in fullness in Jesus Christ. But secondly, um, Passover. John tells us that the Passover festival was near. And Passover was a lot like the 4th of July is for many Americans. It was the focus of very intense nationalistic zeal. And so the people, they don't see divine disclosure here. Even Jesus' disciples don't. When you go back to the beginning of John's Gospel and you read along, and then you get to the kinds of things that Philip and Andrew say in this text today, you think, how is this even possible? But we're, we're just not naturally inclined until the Lord opens our heart and mind to see divine messianic disclosure. The people don't see that. They don't see spirit-given abundance. They don't even think in terms of union with God as the goal of all things. They don't think of that. That's impractical to them. The people think politically first, politically second, and politically third. Or to put it in modern terms, they think practically first, practically second, practically third. We have bread, we have a concrete problem on the land, we have a social problem, we have a political problem. I think I see a solution right here. But they don't even think in terms of union with God as the end and goal of all human existence. They think 
when they see the signs, power. This one can heal disease. He can supply for our hunger. He can bring us the political victory we yearn for and that the prophets promised. See, they thought they had the scriptures on their side. People who do this can point to scriptures. Right? The prophets told us they were going to overthrow all our enemies. They tell us this over and over and over and over again. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to overthrow our enemies. So this is how they read the Messianic promises. So them coming, you know, wanting to make Jesus a king is really not, in their minds, a pipe dream or a joke. Because remember, you have 5,000 men here. In their minds, this is a ready-made guerrilla force, and they want to overthrow Herod. Right? This is not just a cute thing they're saying. They're thinking we have 5,000 men, and we have this guy who can do these signs. Now we have a leader and a king. This is why they're flocking to Jesus. And you know what Jesus, for his part, how he views this? He views this as satanic. He views this as a co-opting of the gospel for purely this worldly ends. It's another version of the temptation where Satan promises him all the kingdoms of the world if he just forsake his messianic mission and worship him. So Jesus withdraws, the text says, to a mountain all by himself. He drops out of the race before the first primary. He goes to Jerusalem, not to wield the spear and to bring judgment, but to take the spear and to bear our judgment. And so he's redefining kingship. He's redefining kingship. The kingdom he brings, Luke says in his gospel, doesn't come with visible signs. Rather, it's a kingdom which is within you. Or as Paul puts it, the kingdom of God does not consist in food and drink, but in righteousness and peace and joy. And where do you find the kingdom? In the Holy Spirit. That's its location. But this is a long way off from the thought world of the crowds or his disciples now. And it's this king who brings this kingdom, the heavenly kingdom, the kingdom which is not of this world, meaning the source of the kingdom is not from this world. The methods of the kingdom are not from this world. This is the king we follow. It's not that the kingdom does not impact this world. It does. Profoundly so. But it does flow through our renunciation of the world's methods and priorities. It turns out that it is not an innocent thing to be good at mundane arithmetic and bad at messianic arithmetic. Turns out it's not, in fact, harmless. There has to be a kind of renunciation of the world's methods and priorities in our following of Jesus. And it's not that we don't fight. Of course we fight. But we don't fight against flesh and blood. Right? Paul's enemy, his principal prime enemy, is not the Roman Empire. He says we war against principalities and powers and forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We fight. But we fight with different instruments. Prayer and the word and the sacraments. 
and deeds of charity. All this is seen in this provision and in this miracle and in the political context in John's gospel. So in short, we want to be people who say with the words of our final hymn, Lead on, O King Eternal, till sin's fierce war shall cease and holiness shall whisper the sweet amen of peace. For not, for not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, but deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. Fight on. Amen.